Welcome to The Great Conversation, where ideas matter. Ideas shape markets. Ideas change the world. I've been really wrestling. I've been wrestling with uh, lots of things in the midst of this best of times and worst of times that we're in, to quote Dickens. I've been wrestling with how does this evoke the best of us? And how how can you use that as a leader? Um, What things can you use as a leader to extract the best of us in any situation, in any particular situation that confronts you? And I wanted to turn to a highly successful leader, multiple companies, to ask how he does that. What is core or what is the platform by which he um, launches companies, manages companies, measures companies? What is his core basic platform? And um, I found Mark Oakes. Mark, welcome to The Great Conversation. Thank you, Ron. Mark, very quickly, um, as most of you know who listen to this podcast, I, I put the bios in. I don't waste a lot of time on this TED Talk of podcast putting bios in, but right now you're running how many different companies right now? Seven. Seven different companies. And by the way, he's looking pretty good. You won't see him on video here. This is an audio. He's looking pretty good and young and healthy and vibrant. <laughs> and by the way, he's extremely uh, intellectually stimulating and have very much enjoyed getting to know him. But Mark, let's go to this. You give me that core platform. Give me uh, and give me some of the uh, stories you have that help anchor it in this short little podcast. You know, Ron, products come, products go, services come, services go, companies start, companies go out of business. One of the things that I've looked at whenever I started a company was there needs to be a bedrock. There needs to be a cornerstone. And while this is not the topic today, my personal faith is obviously a key driver of that, but there are there needs to be an ethos from a cultural standpoint that is communicated, not on a piece of paper that hangs on a wall that says, here's our mission statement or something that goes on a website that looks nice, that becomes part of a branding message. There needs to be something that gets baked into the DNA of not only the company, but every individual in the company. I believe that companies are there to serve marketplaces, but more importantly, I believe that The company is there to help those that are a part of it to grow and become better people, better husbands, wives, members of their community, and more importantly, that their own ability to develop self-discipline and self-reliance is a bigger win than selling a security piece of security equipment. And so this has always been something that's driven me. And there are two cornerstones in all the businesses that we have. Um, we have four primary businesses. We own a bike company and we own Concentric Security, which is sort of set into two components, a service and a construction group. We own a steel manufacturing company and then some real estate holdings. But in each one of those businesses, there are two key drivers. And the first of those is this concept of trust. And the second is this concept of accountability. And it's something that we talk about every single time we get together. If we do a national Zoom call, we talk about it out of the gate. If we meet face-to-face, we talk about it out of the gate. If we have a meeting, we talk about how 
what we're doing from a project standpoint or a staffing standpoint resonates with these two components, trust and accountability. So perhaps I could go through these real quickly and maybe it would help your audience a little bit. That would be much appreciated. Okay. So the first is trust. And what I would start off by saying is that the single largest excise tax in our economy and, and in, in our lives personally is this lack of trust, it's distrust. Whether it's with our government, our people in our company, our markets, whatever the case is. And the challenge is, is that we as humans have a tendency to place this broad-based blanket over a word like trust and go, well, I trust this person and I don't trust that one. The challenge is, is that it, most times it's not measurable. Trust has to be measurable. And so words have very specific meanings. And I would encourage everybody that if you use a word like character or trust and, or you know, faith or grace or whatever, that you look those up and begin to understand specifically what they mean. And perhaps a story would help me frame this trust concept. So several years ago, I was called in by a large firm and asked to speak with their board of directors, which I did. So I asked the chairman of the board, I said, what would you like to talk about? And he said, well, we'd like to talk about trust. I'm like, okay, that's interesting, why? He says, well, we want our customers to trust us more. I said, okay, why do you want your customers to trust you more? Well, because if they trust us more, they'll buy more stuff from us. Okay, so I showed up, everybody got together um, and I knew several of the people in the room. I knew one of the board members and so, I singled him out. It was a young gentleman. His name was Bill. He was a senior vice president. I said, Bill, let me ask you a question. And I knew who he was and I knew his family, beautiful bride. I said, Bill, do you trust your wife? He goes, absolutely. I trust my wife. I said, okay, great. So I said, let me ask you another question. And I paused for a minute and I said, Bill, do you trust your wife? He goes, well, I just answered that question, Mark. Yes, I trust my wife. I said, okay. So, well, let me ask you a third question. I said, Bill, and I hesitated. I said, do you trust your wife? Now he's frustrated. He's answered the question three times. The people around the boardroom table are sort of joking a little bit. And I said, well, hold on a second. Let me, let me paint a picture for you. And let me walk through a little visual for you. I said, you're a runner, correct? He goes, yes. I said, so tomorrow morning you're out running and you've done six miles. You come back to the house. It's a beautiful day. You come up to the base of the driveway and just a stroke of bad luck, you step on a stone or hit a pothole and you twist your leg and you blow your ACL out. I said, you got it? He goes, yeah, that's pretty bad. I said, so you crawl your way up the driveway through the garage, bang on the back door. Your wife comes to the door. She's, in, she's mortified. Do you ask your wife to help you onto the kitchen table, get the sharpest knife out of the drawer and do ACL surgery? He goes, well, no, of course not. I said, so what are you gonna have her do? Take me to the hospital. Bill, let me ask you a question. Do you trust your wife to do ACL surgery? And he paused for a minute and the whole room got the gist of the joke or the story. And he goes, no, I don't trust her to do that. I said, so gentlemen, the first thing and ladies, the first thing you need to understand is that trust is contextual. While we have this tendency to say we trust people or don't trust people, trust first and foremost is a function of context. 
Trust is measurable because it's comp comprised of two components. The first is integrity. Integrity just means you'll do what you say you'll do. And the second is ability. And when you take integrity, doing what you say you'll do, add it to ability, and you do that consistently over time, you build trust in whatever context we're talking about. Some people are extremely trustworthy in one context and not trustworthy in another, and that's okay. But within a company, we have to make sure that people that have a set of responsibilities, that we do the job. If somebody, we hire somebody and they're not able to do the job, that's not their fault. That's our fault as leaders because we hired them. We need to make sure we got the right people in the right seat on the bus. But once they're there, we make, we make sure they understand that those responsibilities that they have, that they say, yes, I will do these. And if they don't have the ability, we make sure we get them the training so that they can do those things. And if they consistently do those over time, we trust them in that role, okay? So we talk about this element of trust all the time. Now, let's go back to the story I told about the boardroom. So I asked everybody in the boardroom a question. I said, so how many of you make New Year's resolutions? Everybody raises their hand. I said, okay. So how many of you have made a New Year's resolution and broken that resolution? Everybody put their hand up, including myself. So, so let's back up for a minute. You made a promise to yourself, whatever it was, go to the gym, start reading more, spend more quiet time, journal, I don't care what it is, but you made a promise to yourself. A day, two days, a week, three weeks later, you stopped. You made a promise and said you would do something, and then you didn't. Understand what has happened here. You broke trust with the single most important person in your life, yourself. Most people, because they're not sensitive to this, break trust with themselves all the time. And then they wonder why they can't trust other people. But at their core, they're in a position where they don't trust themselves. We have a tendency not to see our own foibles and faults but we don't trust others. And so the first step in learning to trust other people is to get back to a baseline of learning how to trust ourselves because trust is measurable. So that's the first tenet. And we talk about it all the time. The second is accountability. When folks come in, we give them a task to do, and it may be two items, five items, 50 items. Those are their responsibilities. Those are the things that they are tasked with executing. Accountability is different, however, and there's a word that separates responsibility and accountability, and that word is culpability. Culpability means blameworthy. Accountability effectively means ownership. So if a person has a set of responsibilities, they put their toe on the line, whether it goes well or doesn't go well, and they take ownership for it, and they go, I own it. No excuses no rationalizations, no justifications, no blame, they just own it. Now this is a hard cultural tenet for people to get a hold of, but we model it and talk about it all the time. So within our organization, if you are lying or you have a specific task and it goes poorly and you step up to the line and you go, it's my fault, it didn't work, we're fine with that. Success is a poor teacher. We expect people to make mistakes and fail. We want them to take ownership for it. The difference is, is that at a leadership or at a management level, the leader does not have the latitude to take ownership for anything good. They have to hand that praise off to the people that made it happen. 
But if anything goes bad in a department, a company, a division, whatever the case may be, they have to own it. They can't say, well, this person is not performing, at least in public. They can't say this person is not performing. It's not my fault. It's their fault. We expect leaders to put their toes on the line and own it. That's accountability. So we talk about these two elements of trust and accountability all the time. So hopefully that, that helps, Ron. One of the things that popped in my head while you were speaking, Mark, and thank you, um, is uh, one of the first managers I ever had came to me with a trick question. It was obviously a trick question. I'll give it to you and you'll know it's immediately what, what the answer is. And he said, what's, what's worse, Ron? Stealing a nickel from a friend or a million dollars? And I said, well, I obviously um, know what the answer is, except I think it's wrong because I want to say a million dollars. He goes, that's what everyone would say. But you know, it's insidious. You know, it's dangerous. Actually, the worst thing you can do is forgive a nickel because the nickel will turn to a dime and a dime will turn to a dollar. And before you know it, and he said character and trust is the same. Yep. Regardless of the outcome. And what you've done by instituting this mantra, if you will, this steady, persistent opening of your meetings and your onboarding and your hiring practice around the uh, components of measurable trust. What you've done is, like you said, created a muscle memory. When, when um, how do you evaluate that in a prospective new hire, that's tough to do because really you won't know it until they're beginning to drive down the road with you as an employee. You won't know if you've actually done it or not. Is there a secret that you have that you've taught your people on how to identify this in the interview process? It's very difficult to do that. Yeah. Okay. So interestingly enough, um, you know, in the early days, I would interview everybody. And because I've done it so often, I can ask questions that speak to, does a person understand the elements of doing what they say they're going to do? And are they accountable? Okay. I don't have that latitude as large as we are now as being a national company. I don't have the latitude. So the thing that I do is I make sure that our leaders, every leader typically has a span of control no greater than seven. Fortunately, mine's a little smaller than that, so I can impart that. But one of the things that I do is that there are always a series of, back to your question, we can't. We can model it. We can communicate when somebody doesn't live up to those standards, what our standards are. We expect our managers and leaders to model that on a day in and out basis. And we give people the opportunity when they come up, come face to face with not modeling those, an opportunity to adopt that belief system, okay? And we give them a couple of chances to do that, but invariably there are times where somebody will not adopt that. Now, this is where things get a little interesting because in the world of being PC and a number of other things, there's always a situation, let's go back to your nickel and million dollar question, okay? <clears throat> that's a question of situational ethics. 
So I remember in class when I was in college at Auburn, I was given a task in one of these classes to some of your listeners may have done this where you're in a boat and then the professor says, hey, you got old people and you got doctors and you got young people and a pregnant woman. The boat can only handle five people and there's eight people who are you going to get rid of? And I walked up and said, I'm not going to play the game. And they're like, well, you have to if you want to get a grade. And I went to the registrar's office and I quit. And I said, for, for ethical reasons, I'm not going to engage in secular humanism and situational ethics. Give me the hardest class you want. That's not that class. And I got out of it. The question of when people don't emulate trust or accountability in an organization, those types of questions come up all the time because there's gray areas. And so one of the things that as a leader, it's not a question of what is black and white. You have to decide in your own life what is black and what is white. And then you have to decide, you have to make a decision that you're just gonna live by those, those black and white decisions that you make. And there's not a day that goes, there's not a week that goes by that one of these questions doesn't come up where I'm asked to get on the telephone and make a decision regarding whether we keep an employee or whether we do something or allow something that on the surface is very, very gray. And I try to keep those conversations down to about a minute or two. And my decisions are my decisions and they may be wrong in the fullness of time, but I'm not going to compromise what I believe is black and white, even if it has a detrimental impact on our business or our ability to serve a customer. And that's happened on multiple occasions. I just can't live with myself if I'm going to make one decision today about something and then make the same, make a different decision about the same topic tomorrow. I just can't do that. And that's very difficult when it comes to growing a business, especially as large as we are. I will, I will walk away from business that I can't serve before I will compromise those types of decisions in deference to having employees that have compromised what I believe, believe is black and white. Yeah. I just won't do it. I once asked uh, a gentleman who I believed was one of the most honest, ethical people I'd ever met in business. And I asked him a simple question. I said, in a, how often can you make black and white decisions? So it's interesting you brought this up. This is the first time we've talked about black and white. I, I, I go, isn't business a gray world? Are people, um, if you do believe in truth, uh, do, do you understand in business, there's a lot of line by omission. There's a lot of gray. Right. And, and it's a wonder we don't trust each other. Uh, in that gray world we live in. So you didn't actually tell me what the red line looks like, but I think it's fairly binary. You're saying there is a truth that I want to hold on to in my seven companies. Is that what you're saying? And and you- There's a truth for me that I- that I'll well, I, I get it, but you're the leader of the company. And so what you're modeling is right. I'm willing to put a stake on the ground what that looks like to me and make decisions against it, right? Right. Okay. Okay. Right. And you know, it's. I'll give you an example, if 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 that would help. Yeah. We have a position that we were trying to hire for, and we had interviewed for that position for six to eight months. Mm. Okay. And it was painful. 
there was a lot of hours, a lot of time involved in hiring this for this position. And we finally found an individual that, and we asked this individual, we always ask everybody up front, is there anything in your past or anything in your presence that would cause you to fail a drug test or fail a background check? No. Okay, fine. Because we are a security company. You know, we have security contracts. We have federal work in the story. Okay. And so this person was hired and we always do the drug test after they were hired. We did the drug test. This individual failed the drug test. So the manager, the, the vice president confronted the person said, look, you didn't pass the drug test. And this individual said, oh yeah, but it's okay. And came into the office and handed a legitimate medical marijuana card to the vice president. And the, so what happens is, is that people have a tendency to look at their sunk cost associated with bringing a person to this position, six to eight months of pain and suffering and dozens and dozens of interviews and then get gray relative to hiring somebody with a medical marijuana card. I'm not saying that they're not valuable or that they're not needed at points in time, but I'm a federal contractor, I'm a drug-free workplace. And right now until it's changed, marijuana is on the list of unapproved drugs at the federal level, end of story. So what, by the time I was brought into the conversation, there had already been hours of dialogue back and forth between managers and vice presidents and our chief heart officer, which is our head of HR. And I'm now brought in so that everybody can plead their case regarding why this gray is acceptable. And so I get on the telephone and they started into it. I'm like, I'm not gonna listen to any of this. The answer is no, it's black, it's white. We're not hiring this person into discussion. And it, it obviously creates pain and angst and all of those kind of things. But the minute I take a nickel, I'm going to take a dime. For me, there are just certain things that are red lines. And I'm just, I've gotten to a point after 40 years in business. You know, I wasn't there when Truett Cathy made decisions regarding his business. I wasn't in his boardroom when he sat down there and looked at everybody that was looking at ways to make money and said, we're not going to open on Sunday. Chick-fil-A is just not going to open on Sunday. End of story. It's the Lord's day. We're going to rest. Truett Cathy made a decision. That's it. Truett Cathy made a decision to use Chick-fil-A as an opportunity to give underprivileged people this opportunity to develop leadership skills. It cost him money to do that. He doesn't have to do that. He's selling chicken sandwiches but he made a decision to do that for Chick-fil-A. I'm not opening on Sunday and I'm gonna create a university called Chick-fil-A where I'm gonna teach people how to say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, thank you and exercise leadership skills. That was Truett's decision. It was black and it was white. There was no gray, but I can guarantee you that up until Truett passed away, nobody questioned whether or not they were gonna open on a Sunday or not. Truett just made a decision. So in my world, until such time comes, not, not all of my decisions are right. And I'm fine with that. I own those. But there's things where I'm just black and I'm white. And even though there's pain and suffering and it costs us business and I may not be able to serve a customer, I will call that customer personally and say, I don't have the resources. I, 
I can't serve you. I wish I could, but I'm not going to compromise what we do to hire somebody that's not qualified to meet my level of expectations to serve you. Therefore, I can't serve you. Here are other people that can do it for you. And that's just all I'll do. This is why this has been a great conversation. We've gone on a journey with Mark Oaks, starting with this elusive concept that shouldn't be elusive, a measurable notion of value called trust. We've seen how it slowly has been interwoven in the DNA of his companies. Mark Oaks, this has been a great conversation. My pleasure.